For me, there's always been a spooky element to Christmas. Haunting carols, Latin masses, a war between heaven and earth, an ancient and magical being who deals out reward and punishment beneath the glow of a Christmas tree. It's all pretty metal when you think about it. But even more than that, I suppose it plays on my lifelong awareness of the horrors that lie beneath the idyllic facades we embrace implicitly. You see a beautiful field covered in snow. I see the dead bodies of murder victims buried beneath it. You see a happy family. I see the Palmers. Not all the time, mind you. I don't assume things are bad. I just know from experience that we get crowns placed on our teeth to conceal and protect the exposed nerves beneath, metaphorically speaking. And when that delicate veneer is chipped away by a Christmas song or movie, well, I feel less alone. So for this episode, I decided to cover films that poke holes in our assumptions and expectations surrounding this holiday. So get some cookies and milk, cozy up under a blanket, and listen. start with what is arguably one of the best films on my list today, story-wise at least. Christmas Evil, aka You Better Watch Out, aka Terror in Toyland. Not only has this film garnered 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, it also has the approval of the esteemed John Waters, who has purportedly called it the greatest Christmas movie ever made. And even if he didn't say that explicitly, he is definitely the film's number one fan and even contributed audio commentary to the 2006 Special Edition DVD, which was released by Synapse Films. This 1980 horror flick, directed by Lewis Jackson, starts off innocently enough. A father dresses as Santa Claus to surprise his two boys, who covertly watch him deliver presents from the stairwell with their mother. Later, Harry, the oldest, sneaks back downstairs to see if he can catch Santa again, seeking another glimpse of tangible proof that the Jolly Red Elf was indeed real. But instead, he discovers his father, who is still dressed as Santa, enjoying a bit of sexy canoodling with his mom. It's a moment that would probably crush any kid on his way out of childhood who still wants to believe in Santa Claus. But instead of feeling sad and confused, and then eventually accepting the truth, Harry's psyche gets stuck in that moment. From then on, deception and betrayal are inextricably linked to sex and the destruction of Christmas. And Harry's mind can't accept that both physical urges and holiday cheer can coexist. Now, if you haven't seen the film, I know what you're probably thinking. This is just another hokey Christmas slasher film a la Silent Night, Deadly Night. But it's not. Instead, director Lewis Jackson focused less on splatter and more on the cognitive dissonance that societal expectations and taboos can create. Mix that in with Harry's already unstable mind and a few gingerbread cookies, and you have a pretty tasty recipe for yuletide murder. The actor who plays Harry Stadling, Brandon Maggart, has enough space within the film's more artistic approach to show how his character's slow descent into madness is tightly woven with his obsessive cravings for justice. Side note, in real life, one of Brandon's two daughters is none other than Fiona Apple. Alright, before we go any further, let me tell you about the man that the boy, Harry Stadler, would become. An employee of the Jolly Dreams toy factory, 
Harry is promoted from the assembly line to a management position, but still never gains the respect of his colleagues. Despite being their boss, they continue to tease and even trick him because, well, he's a bit odd. That's no justification for bullying, but they certainly manage to rationalize their mistreatment of him. The viewer sees a bit more than these blue-collared bullies, though. We see Harry at home, playing with toys, dressing as Santa, and spying on local children, while writing their names and their behaviors, good and bad, in his big red book. His coworkers' mistreatment, coupled with the company's facade of generosity, are certainly the main triggers for Harry's breakdown. But his downward spiral has its noble moments. In true Robin Hood fashion, Harry's murderous rampage is punctuated with moments of chaotic goodness. Dressed as Santa, he steals as many toys as he can transport from the factory and brings them to a home for mentally ill children that his company is claiming to help. After some initial reticence from the security guard, Harry manages to dispense his gifts and definitely makes the staff's night. But if I was there, my question would be, what's in the boxes? Bombs? Dead animals? I guess I just can't really enjoy things, but this movie is also a pretty good example of why. People we would otherwise call evil, or at least disturbed, are also capable of doing good things. We are too complicated to put in one box or the other. But there is one box that this man falls solidly into. He's dangerous. And the truth is, we often just don't know that until it's too late. I don't think we can look back on the past and say it was just a simpler time. People have always been this way. We're just wiser now. Or at least, that's the hope. The film gets around to the gore when Santa stabs a tiny bayonet held by a toy soldier into the eye of a man who, upon leaving Midnight Mass, begins taunting Harry's Santa getup. They show the sword stabbing the eye very briefly, but the effect is convincing and true to the classic gritty 80s special effects that we all know and love. Harry then uses a toy axe with an unusually sharp edge to murder the man along with two others. This part is a little silly as there isn't really enough force behind Harry's blows or, in all honesty, a sharp enough edge on the axe, to do the level of damage that was done. But apart from that, it is decidedly the moment where Harry goes from escalation to action. Later, Harry sneaks into the home of one of his bullying co-workers and smothers him with a sack full of presents before slashing the man's throat with the star he wrenched from the top of a Christmas tree. The victim's wife wakes to see her husband's gaping throat on her chest and screams. And then, the sickest moment of all. As Harry makes his getaway, two children wake up and sees Santa running down the hall. Harry turns, smiles at the kids, and they smile back. Moments like this, where Harry connects with children in a fatherly way, punctuate the film and only increase our unease. The nice man who makes children laugh, who dances with you at a Christmas party, who cares about honesty and integrity, might also be a monster. The life of the party can often be like a conductor, directing an orchestra keeping everyone's ears happy. But God forbid you should want to play some jazz instead. If you do, well, you better watch out. One final note about this movie that I think really summarizes it, as well as the selections for this episode. While in the midst of his killing spree, Harry's brother expresses concern over his odd behavior. Harry replies, quote, But Phil, you should be proud of me. I did what you've always wanted me to do. I finally found the right notes. I can play the tune now, the tune everybody dances to. It's my version, but it works. And later, quote, I'm gonna play the tune. Everybody will dance, you'll see. You don't have to worry anymore. End quote. Well, when Harry's escapades backfire and the town fights back, Harry feels nothing but confusion. Quote, 
Everyone's rejected my tune. I don't understand. I know it's right. I wanted to give people what they wanted, what they said they wanted, but they don't want Santa Claus. I don't understand. They don't want me. End quote. The man is clearly unstable, but he's not so different from the rest of us. The metaphorical rulebook that society hands us looks straightforward on the surface, especially around Christmas time. And there are rules, right? Decrees that we should all obey, and those who don't should experience the consequences, right? But in reality, these rules aren't always intended to be followed to the letter. And if they are followed too rigidly, they can lead to immense cruelty under the guise of justice. Besides, we all have our missteps, and for the most part, we get back up after we trip and keep dancing. But for someone who is truly unable to read between the lines, this can put them in a state of real and seemingly endless agony and isolation. It's unlikely that most people in this position would ever hurt anyone, but Harry's longing for connection and belonging is what makes him so sympathetic, and Christmas Evil so unique in the world of holiday horror. Now, as I said, Christmas Evil is one of the best Christmas movies I've ever seen. But it's not the best according to Rotten Tomatoes, who gave Rare Exports a whopping 89% and placed it at number one of its 25 Christmas movies ranked from worst to best. It's also the winner of multiple awards and is certainly a great film worth seeing. Rotten Tomatoes calls this 2010 film, quote, an unexpectedly delightful crossbreed of deadpan comedy and Christmas horror, end quote. Roger Ebert called it, quote, a superior horror film, a spot-on parody of movies about dead beings being brought back to life, end quote. Kim Newman, a critic and novelist, lauded its, quote, very black humor and strange mix of revisionist mythology, gruesome horror, and authentic Christmas spirit. It has a gritty, outdoorsy feel appropriate to an exploration of the brutal side of a harsh, all-male life in an extreme environment, end quote. Michael Richthofen of The Hollywood Reporter called it, quote, a fiendishly entertaining Christmas yarn rooted in Northern European legend and lore, complete with a not-so-jolly old Saint Nick, informed more by Brothers Grimm than Norman Rockwell, end quote. So what is this acclaimed movie about, you ask? Well, it's mostly about a kid waiting expectantly for Christmas, but not in the way you'd think. I'd liken this movie to Home Alone, only instead of fending off burglars, Macaulay Culkin kills evil Santa. You see, Pietari and his father, Rauno, live in the Finnish province of Lapland. Rauno is, trigger warning, a reindeer slaughterer. And they live in a small village near a mountain known as Korvatunturi, or Irfell, which lies on the border between Finland and Russia. Fell being the Finnish word for mountain. Life is going along as it always had for Pietari and his father when a British research team starts drilling on the mountain, which they believe to be a burial mound slash prison for Julupuki, a creature in Finnish folklore whose jovial side resembles our modern-day Santa. His name literally means Christmas or Yule Goat in Finnish. His darker side, however, is quite similar to the German Krampus, horns and all. There appears to be a lot of flux in the nature of this character, so pinning down a precise persona isn't really possible. So the film definitely had room to take liberties here. Pietari learns of the researchers' intentions while he and a friend are spying on them. After the two boys plied open the fence surrounding the mountain to get a better look, 
Frightened by what he discovers, Piatari immediately goes home to do his own investigation and gives us a pretty amazing montage as well, involving stacks of old books featuring illustrations of Julapuki. How he managed to get them in the middle of nowhere, I don't know, but I want to visit his local library. Then when all the reindeer in the area are mysteriously killed, Piatari immediately thinks it's his fault for sneaking through the fence, and that Santa will surely punish him for it. Never mind that wolves were always a threat to his family's business. In fact, his father is shown setting a trap before anything bad happens to catch any prowling wild canines who may have a taste for Rudolph. To that end, Rauno hung a severed pig's head over a deep pit filled with sharp, upright wooden stakes. The pig head used in that scene was pretty cool, but it wasn't very gory and could arguably be called fake looking due to the lack of any blood. But for all I know, they could have used a real pig's head, and the lack of blood kind of makes sense on the one hand when you think about their environment. Blood freezes, and so it's possible that the head was severed cleanly with an electric saw, and that no blood or tissue was lost in the process. But in film, there's this dance you have to do, because sometimes imitating life with precision ultimately makes a prop or a makeup look fake to the viewer's eye. I personally might have liked a touch more gore here, if only to increase the sense of unease further. And that unease, where does it come from? Really. Like so many great horror films, this movie layers irrational fears on top of real ones, an approach that acts as a catalyst for our willful suspension of disbelief. For example, in real life, it would be much easier for a child to be afraid of evil Santa punishing him for his mistakes than for him to be afraid of his father's wrath. Think about it. They live in the middle of nowhere. It's winter. Piatari is a child and doesn't understand the financial threats that are driving his father to anger and ultimately to emotional withdrawal from his son. On that note, it's also interesting that this is a film with an all-male cast. That might offend some people, but I appreciated it because I think it was ultimately about toxic masculinity. These men and their children live in a harsh climate where tears freeze the minute you shed them, and Piatari's father does manual work slaughtering reindeer and you can't be too tender if you do that every day. It's also the kind of job that doesn't afford him and his family much luxury or room for financial error or any other sort of disaster. By contrast, Piatari is sweet and gentle, and despite going unheard and being harshly rebuffed for most of the movie, he ultimately saves the day. He becomes a man, his definition of a man, by defying societal expectations and following his heart. There was a mix of practical and digital effects in the film, but they were mostly subtle, at least the practical part. The makeup work done on the first Santa figure was unexpected. An already thin old man's sinewy body was made to look emaciated and corpse-like after having been impaled on Rauno's wolf trap. This so-called Santa turns out to be one of Julapuki's helpers who have come to aid their master. Side note, there's really nothing creepier than a crowd of skinny, dirty, naked old men with long grimy Santa beards chasing you through a snowy wasteland. Their imperviousness to the cold, coupled with the brazen hunger behind their eyes, is enough to keep anyone on their best behavior all year long. In this film, Santa is more of a vengeful god on speed than your run-of-the-mill demon. And like some alternative interpretations of the Adam and Eve story, Piotr takes on the role of the serpent, informing those around him of the truth and setting them free. 
The underlying message is be naughty if, quote, being naughty means simply defeating your oppressors, conquering your fears, and protecting the helpless. On the other hand, a more mainstream interpretation would set Pietari up as a Christ figure, an innocent child who defeats evil once and for all. I dislike the latter view mainly because it was all of Pietari's disobedience that afforded him the opportunity to rescue his family and friends. But it is interesting how the two readings aren't so different from each other, isn't it? Food for thought, she said, handing you a piece of fruit. But that's the thing about Christmas. It isn't just one story. It's folktale, layered upon folktale, with some religion mixed in. A character can be good from one point of view and bad from another. Sound familiar? None of us are either good or bad. And like Piatari, we can conquer those voices if we take back our own stories and find the inner strength to tell them ourselves. Before I first watched Krampus, I was stoked. Then, I was disappointed. Which is why I wasn't too surprised to discover that the 2015 film sits at 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. The first hour of the movie is the usual Christmas bullshit, about tolerating people who are consistently mean to you just because it's Christmas. It's basically codependency swaddled in an unflattering knitted sweater with untamed B.O. lurking beneath. Films like these, and Christmas folklore in general, tap into our primal fears of losing our support system. Call it a herd or pack mentality. I suppose troop would be a better word, since that's what a group of chimpanzees is called, and they're our closest relatives, but whatever. You get the idea. In any case, if we fail to live up to the expectations of our group, we might be cast out. We might get lost. And if left alone in the jungle, we will certainly be in danger. So the message we've retained for thousands of years is, stay in line, or you better watch out. And honestly, I'm over it. I'm not offended, I just think it's really stale at this point, and story-wise, we can do better. That's why I prefer movies like Rare Exports that take the story in a different direction. I mean, the fact is, it's really scary to venture out on your own. And it's way harder to trust your own instincts rather than just implicitly trusting the consensus of the group, even when trusting that consensus is doing you great harm. And don't get me wrong, we should totally explore these fears. I just think that we can also do it with a little more complexity. Anyway, uh, if you haven't seen Krampus yet, I recommend that you just skip the first hour or so and get to the good stuff. And I don't mean to imply that the story gets better. It doesn't. But who doesn't want to see a gingerbread man impaled on a fridge door with a large knife? Or a jack-in-the-box with an expanding jaw, large curved teeth, and enough drool to glaze a dozen yule logs? Not to mention the creepy angel doll with its long, skinny tongue, or the teddy bear with its manic, toothy smile. Oh, uh, and if you have seen it, do you think that bear is the coolest toy ever? Would you like to own one? Well, it turns out that his name is Clow, and you can purchase him from Weta Workshop for $29.99. Unfortunately, this toy received some bad reviews and doesn't sound like it was very well made. So if you're looking for something a little less mainstream and super gory, check out Scare Bears. The artist's gallery and shop is online, and both items are in the show notes, just in case you're up for a little after-Christmas shopping. Also, fun fact, the mother in the film was also the mom in Hereditary. 
and she really has a thing with fireplaces and getting strung up by her neck in attics. Definitely some deja vu during a few of her scenes. And then there were the elves. Covered in fur, carved wooden masks, and horns. They arrive to finish the job and steal the family members away to the underworld. And they look like something straight out of a Krampus Knock festival, which I love. But I'm also a little torn because we got to see so little of them, likely because the director didn't want the audience to focus on the fact that they were wearing just full body costumes. They didn't look very real, per se. I like the old school Germanic vibe that their accoutrements lent to the final scenes, but part of me thinks that foam latex would have been a better option if it meant that we could see more of them. And the Krampus's makeup and costume were both pretty rad when he made his first full-fledged appearance. But then later, without as much digital enhancement, his face looked like an expressionless mask, and his cloak and hood made him look more like a fragile old man with a hunchback than an ancient vengeful being. Throwing some animatronics in there to make the facial features move a la Pan's Labyrinth would have been amazing. And heck, get Doug Jones to play the Krampus. Now that would be a Christmas movie worth seeing. Let's talk about one movie that, while it may be a tad scary for young kids, is rife with amazing special effects. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. This 2000 film was directed by Ron Howard and starred Jim Carrey as the Grinch. It takes an anti-consumerism tack and positions the Grinch as a sympathetic outsider whose life has been shaped by the bullying he experienced as a child just for looking different. It challenges our capitalistic and superficial notions of Christmas and compels us to turn not to a department store, but to the outsider we fear for true Christmas cheer. Though the film's makeup department was helmed by the great Rick Baker and Cinevation Studios, the principal artist on the film was the renowned Kazuhiro Tsuji. He started out in his home country of Japan and worked with director Akira Kurosawa before moving to the U.S. in 1996 to work for Baker. Though he went on to work for films such as Hellboy, Men in Black, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, How the Grinch Stole Christmas was his first, and most demanding, American film to say the least. The Whoville set was primarily constructed at Universal Studios behind the Bates Motel set from Hitchcock's Psycho, which is appropriate once you know how close to insanity the film drove its actors and crew. Now, before we delve too deeply into the drama surrounding Carrie's Grinch makeup, let's tip our hats to Baker and his crew for how they took on the monumental task of applying foam latex nose appliances to nearly all the residents of Whoville, plus more than a few ears, wigs, and dentures to boot. If you've listened to episode two of this podcast, A Brief History of Makeup, part one, then you already know about how Frank Westmore used an airbrush to give each cast member of the Ten Commandments a fake tan. Well, when you're applying foam latex prosthetics, you can't exactly just slap them on and go. So this was a time-consuming task, and Baker and his crew nailed it. All right, back to the Grinch. Rick Baker personally designed the makeup for our verdant anti-hero, and it actually went through several iterations to see how much, or rather how little, makeup was required to get Carrie into full Grinch mode. Carrie was pretty adamant that he wanted people to know it was him, as were Ron Howard and producer Brian Grazer. But Baker disagreed. In a 2000 interview published in the LA Times and written by Michael Mallory, Baker said, quote, I felt very strongly that the character should be a Grinch. 
I kept saying, it's not how Jim Carrey stole Christmas, end quote. In the end, they went with the original design, and Baker was relieved. Costume-wise, they ultimately settled on a spandex suit into which green-hued yak hair was sewn in. There were also some funny conversations regarding the Grinch's, um, exposed bottom. Apparently, Baker had several discussions about how best to cover that crack. In the end, they went with a more toned-down version that allowed the Grinch to run around in the buff without causing a scandal. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Baker remarked, quote, Boy, I have weird conversations in my business. Eddie Murphy always says, you talk about things that nobody else in the world talks about, end quote. While it was great that they eventually came to a consensus about the makeup design, there was just one problem. All that deliberation left them unprepared for shooting. You see, foam latex prosthetics don't come out of the mold, camera-ready, every single time you run them. It usually takes a few attempts before you can get a prosthetic that's up to snuff. So instead of having stockpiles of prosthetics on hand, Baker and his crew had to take the prosthetics right out of the mold and use them, and then run them again as many times as were needed to get another grade-A Grinch face. Speaking of which, if you're a makeup artist and you want to get your hands on some top-of-the-line Grinch prosthetics or who knowses, take a look at RBFX. You can find them online at rbfx.com or on Instagram at rbfx. On the first day of filming, Suji got a taste of the trials ahead. In an interview with the LA Times, he said that Carrie, quote, didn't like the way his neck was covered with the hair, which was part of the wig. So we had to fix it right on the set, which meant we couldn't start the shooting right away. It was the first time I got that tension, and I think many people had that tension, because Jim is a perfectionist, and every time there was a change, he said something. End quote. That does sound stressful. But don't worry, it gets worse. During the first eight-hour application, Jim Carrey became so frustrated that he kicked a hole in the wall of his trailer. I mean, I get it. If you're in the chair eight hours a day, every day while filming, that would drive anyone to a violent, cathartic release. But this was only one of the initial tests, and they refined it and cut the application time down to around two hours, which, according to Rick Baker, quote, is actually pretty short for an elaborate look like that. The clumps were more like a three-and-a-half-hour makeup, end quote. Oof. Sick burn, bro. Needless to say, Carrie wanted to bail right then and there. He didn't, but he did ultimately need training from an actual CIA operative to learn techniques for enduring extreme torture so that he could stay calm on set. Though, in all fairness, I can see how the experience could be intensely trying for someone with sensory issues. Whether or not that was the source of Carrie's reactions remains to be seen. Aside from the stress that the makeup caused him, and that he, in turn, caused the crew, Carrie's primary beef was with his contact lenses. Not the lenses themselves, mind you, but the fake snow that regularly managed to find its way between Carrie's contact lenses and his eyes. And no, the snow wasn't asbestos, thank God. We have grown as an industry since the creation of the Wizard of Oz. But it was paper. Dry, crushed paper. Imagine that scraping against your pupils, and you'd probably be ready to play a pretty convincing Grinch, too. Carrie's perfectionism and aggressive behavior led Suji to take a brief hiatus from the film, which was also a plan to show Carrie just how essential he was, 
Ultimately, Carrie and Howard both asked Suji to come back, and he agreed, on one condition. They had to help him get his green card. Now, back to the infamous Grinch makeup. It was applied in three primary steps, according to the aforementioned LA Times interview. The foam latex pieces were first, and they covered Carrie's entire face, except for his chin and lip. Next came the paint job, hair pieces and wig, and of course, Jim got a break between each step. Fun fact, Carrie listened to a live recording of the Bee Gees almost every day, and Suji realized he was timing his work to the music. So just to be on the safe side, and to avoid any more disastrous inconsistencies, he went out and bought a copy for himself, just in case Carrie forgot his. And then one day, Carrie did forget, and Suji was prepared. And Suji, though not one to typically ask for autographs, asked Carrie to autograph that CD for him as a memento. Now, applying makeup for a couple of hours each morning probably doesn't sound like a lot, but that's because the bulk of Tsuji's work was in touching up and maintaining the makeup throughout the day of shooting. This was necessary to combat the movement and sweat that can change the makeup's appearance. And if you've ever seen Jim Carrey perform, you know he's a pretty active guy. To keep his eye on the details, Tsuji used a monocular to zoom in while he made his touch-ups. He also wore a tool belt with all the supplies he needed so he could follow Jim around set. You're probably picturing like a yellow tool belt, something small and sturdy, right? Nope. According to Baker, Suji was, quote, a walking makeup factory. I kept calling that his utility belt because it looked like a Batman thing, end quote. The belt weighed about 100 pounds, and Suji eventually added suspenders to it to distribute the weight better. At the end of each day, Jim wanted to get the heck out of the Grinch getup as quickly as possible. And who can blame him? The crew would help him get out of his suit, and then he'd peel the foam latex off his face while resting in his trailer. According to Tsuji, quote, He tried to get them off in one piece, and he put the used appliance in a Ziploc bag with that day's call sheet. He gave those to some people as a souvenir. End quote. The crew spent the last 40 minutes of the day cleaning off the remaining globs of makeup and glue that remained. But Carrie wasn't the only one to don the green mantle. Ron Howard did too. Quote, I wore the makeup one day. I wore it all day. It was fun for a half day, and then I was glad to get out of it at the end of the day and happy to never experience that again. End quote. On the last day of filming, and after a long and strained relationship, Jim gave Tsuji a Ziploc bag containing the final used foam latex prosthetic and call sheet. While reflecting on the whole experience, Tsuji remarked, quote, I think How the Grinch Stole Christmas was the hardest film I've ever worked on. It was a good memory, but if we had to do that again, we won't do it. End quote. I completely understand, but I'm a little bummed. So, Ron Howard... If you're hearing this and you want a makeup artist to torture for your next live-action Dr. Seuss film, or any other makeup effects heavy film for that matter, you can email me at gailmartinmakeup at gmail.com. Directed by Grant Harvey, Brett Sullivan, and Stephen Hoban, the 2015 anthology A Christmas Horror Story has racked up an 80% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The trio managed to film the entire movie in only 22 days, despite having to keep track of numerous characters across multiple locations. 
The four stories that make up the movie are interspersed and connected by the commentary of a radio DJ called Dangerous Dan. Played by William Shatner, the alcoholic disc jockey is on a mission to keep the Christmas spirit alive while working a long shift behind the mic. And despite his co-workers' negative reactions to his Christmas cheer, the people of Bailey Downs are in desperate need of it. You see, some pretty horrific things happened the previous Christmas, and they're still recovering. In the first tale, two teenage boys and a girl break into their school, a former convent, to investigate an unsolved murder case. The three teens get locked in the basement where the murders occurred, and the girl becomes possessed upon seeing a bloody ghost. Seduction and murder ensue, along with some really troubling messages about a woman's control over her own body. Not really a fan of this one, though it did have some good gore, such as an aborted fetus. <laughs> Look. I know I wouldn't want to see one in real life, but I did get to see some amazing silicone imitations once, and they were pretty rad. Especially the alien ones. If you ever have to guess at the kind of thing I'd want to find in my Christmas stocking, well, you don't have to guess anymore. <laughs> the second story follows the police officer assigned to the aforementioned murder case. It was so traumatic for him that he had to take time away to recover. Against his wife's better judgment, he takes her and their son out to a section of woods owned by a man named Big Earl to cut down a Christmas tree. An interesting move for a police officer as it was against the law. Their son gets lost, but even after they find him and bring him home, something isn't quite right. Big Earl eventually reaches out to say that it isn't really their son, it's a changeling. Changelings are creatures found in folklore across Europe, and they're basically doppelgangers that fairies use to swap out with a real child so they can steal it away. This story is a little more unique, and there's definitely some decent gore. At one point, the changeling picks up and almost plays with the father's severed hand as if it were any normal household object. It's a creepy image, to say the least, and if the young actor was phased by it at all, he didn't let on one bit. The makeup or possibly masks on the changelings weren't anything to write home about, but they did the job. The third story follows a dysfunctional family on their way to visit their elderly aunt, who tells the kids about Krampus. After some misbehavior and even more arguing, the family is asked to leave. So naturally, they end up being hunted by Krampus on their way home. The ending is unexpected, but I wouldn't necessarily call it good. This Krampus, however, was much more dynamic than its feature film counterpart. Buff as fuck and white as snow, every drop of blood dripping from his mouth or splattered on his skin created a stark and memorable contrast. The face appeared to be either foam latex or a silicone mask, which allowed for a bit more expression and enhanced his menacing appearance. Though I do like the overall design in the 2015 film, I think in my heart of hearts, I want some combination of the two. A design that isn't afraid to be seen. The fourth story is more up my alley. One of Santa's elves flies into a fit of rage and then suddenly dies. And then it gets worse. Mrs. Claus and the rest of Santa's elves turn into zombies thanks to the infection that the first elf succumbed to. Santa spends most of his story in his own arctic apocalypse, and if it weren't for his scenes, I don't think the film would have become as popular as it is. Watching maniacal undead elves laughing and screaming while Santa impales, chops, decapitates, and crushes them is some spectacular holiday viewing. And the gore? Spot on. The movie ends with Dangerous Dan asking the tough questions. Quote, what the hell is it about Christmas and Bailey Downs? Are we cursed or something? 
Why does the season of love and peace and goodwill keep ending in blood and death and horror? End quote. I'm sure more than a few of us are asking ourselves the same question right now. <laughs> Though I hope metaphorically. release our cravings for peace and our penchant for conflict. We want things to be, well, good. We want to be happy, and when that desire is thwarted, all the chaos that comes with Christmas is released, as if Pandora's box were filled with boring stocking stuffers and sharp knives. We long for innocence, love, fulfillment, things that are fleeting, things that will leave us, and possibly leave us ruined. Christmas, like the folklore it appropriated, is an exploration of these feelings and fears. It is a clash of expectations and disappointments, where deep wounds are opened and often regifted beneath a dying tree. We tie up our pain with shiny red bows because for now, just for today, we would rather not feel it. So we turn unconsciously to this collection of primal symbols to bolster our will to survive, and to distract us from the possibility that we won't. And these symbols, such as the birth of a child, contain our hope that one day we might claw our way beyond survival and thrive in safety and acceptance. In a home that protects us from the demons lurking just outside. Until next time, I'm Gail Martin, and this is Faking It. Merry Christmas, everyone.